Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Just head to Amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. (laughs) Was hard, but not anymore, thanks to Wondersuite from Bluehost. Answer a few questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically create your website or store. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content, and we automatically help you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. You know, I got also caught up with the validation that I got externally on social media. So being just starting to get all these awards, top 40, this top 30, this top black women and da da da. It just became this like this cycle I couldn't get out of. I was trapped. Welcome to She Pivots, the podcast where we talk with women who dared to pivot out of one career and into something new and explore how their personal lives impacted these decisions. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman 
So I have to tell you the story of how this interview came to be. I met Isa Watson at Marie Claire's annual power trip. After the amazing weekend spending time with the powerhouse women, Isa wrote me an email asking to catch up on the phone and pitched herself as a guest for the show. And boy, did she pitch. We get so many pitches, which we love, but I've never been more convinced or persuaded to have a guest on than Isa. Isa is the former vice president of strategy at J.P. Morgan Chase in New York and Hong Kong, who left behind the glitz of her C-suite career after feeling burnt out and unfulfilled. Her solution? Founding her company Squad, which is emerging as the app of choice for Gen Z to talk to their close friends every day. But this pivot is far from her first. From thinking she was destined to become a doctor, to pivoting to pursue her MBA at MIT, to her successful career on Wall Street, all while wading through the emotions of losing her father while taking care of her mother after a tragic accident. Now she is hoping to inspire others in their lives and careers with her debut book, Life Beyond Likes. She truly does it all, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. And did I mention that she's a professional skydiver? Enjoy. My name is Isa Watson. I'm the founder and CEO of Squad. I'm the author of Life Beyond Likes, and I'm a competitive skydiver. So we're going to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I was born in D.C. My family's Caribbean, but I spent middle and high school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Chapel Hill is a, a very interesting place. It's very well-educated, very liberal, like something like 85% of residents when I lived there had college degrees. And my high school was actually ranked top 10 high schools, public high schools in the country by Wall Street Journal when I was there. And so what you had was a lot of kind of progressive, open-minded people where being Black wasn't like a big deal. It wasn't, um, it was actually probably a little cool, you know? in some regards. And so, but, you know, regardless, I always felt accepted for the most part. And I think that, you know, leaving Chapel Hill, going to honestly, even different cities in, in North Carolina, there was a lack of acceptance. Oftentimes that I felt, I felt was very jarring. And I was like, am I accepted here for a reason? Am I different? Like I don't versus there. And I just think that as a, as a kid trying to figure out who you are in this world, there's just a lot of noise you have to sort through. So in your book, you say, quote, this whole insecurity of being dark skin that I had developed as an elementary and middle school student in North Carolina was even further amplified when I got to high school. Can you tell me more about that? My high school, I would say, was like 90 percent white, 10 percent black, and then like 0.05 percent other. <laughs> so um, definitely didn't necessarily fit into the homogeneity of the school. But on the flip side, I would say growing up in Chapel Hill afforded me opportunities. Like I was a, a research chemist at 14 in the labs at UNC Chapel Hill doing organic chemistry research for a faculty member. You know, things like that you don't come by in other markets. I mean, to, to even think that you would be in a real research lab at 14, you must have been a huge science prodigy. <laughs> I never call myself a prodigy, but I will say I've always been a builder. You know, my dad, he was an old school engineer, immigrant engineer. His philosophy was if you can't build it, then you should have been using it. And so from the time I was seven, back in the CompUSA Circuit City days, he would buy me the parts of a computer and I would build my own computers. Um, and that just kind of morphed into me 
like building and, you know, robotics, building and mechanical engineering. And then I, I kind of fell into chemistry and I was like, oh, this is cool. So I was part of this program called Project Seed and it was sponsored by the American Chemical Society. And they basically took scientifically gifted students from all the local high schools in Raleigh, Durham and Chapel Hill. And we would be placed into labs at UNC Duke and NC State. And um, UNC was my my home base. And it was interesting because I had just taken high school chemistry and I was put in an an organic chemistry lab. So during the summer, I had to teach myself organic chemistry while working with my postdoc. And, you know, quite frankly, I thought it was I loved it. I love the concept of building something from nothing. And chemistry is that, you know, essentially. We were doing a lot of really important research that had a lot of big implications in cancer. And so I would say it was definitely hard, but being a self-starter and just kind of pushing forward and being self-teaching, essentially, you know, when I think back and I say, hey, I had to kind of learn organic chemistry at 14 years old. It sounds a little bit crazy, (laughs) but (laughs) um, yeah, I kind of, I just made it work. Were you thinking about your future and your sense of self as like, I am a scientist. Like I have a path to follow. I will be a scientist. Yeah. And especially being a child of immigrants, I had to commit to getting all the D's. So the PhD, the MD. So they were like, okay, what MD PhD program do you want to go to? I was never asked, by the way, what college I want to go to or anything like that. They were like, so for your PhD or for your MD PhD, what are we doing? (laughs) I mean, from the time I was five, I always told my parents told people in church, they were like, I just going to Harvard or MIT. And so I, I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what Harvard was at like five, six years old. So I, I started telling people, yeah, I'm going to Harvard or MIT for grad school. When it came time to make her decision on where to go to college, she was bouncing between the expectations of her parents and wanting to connect to her experience as a Black woman. So I actually went to Hampton University for college, which is an HBCU. And I did my master's in in chemistry at Cornell after that. But, you know, kind of growing up in a a very white environment, there was just more comfort and confidence I needed to build being a black woman and what that meant. And going to one of the top, you know, HBCUs was very empowering in that way. And Hampton always talks about, you know, the education there being like education for life. Right. And I think that I was uncomfortable as a tall, dark woman. I just didn't know what that meant. I got a lot of feedback from people in Chapel Hill. I would leave Chapel Hill and get different feedback. And I was like, I'm confused about who I'm supposed to be. It allowed me to kind of find myself a little bit and find my confidence and find my voice that then allowed me to go out and kind of navigate the world appropriately. She graduated from Hampton with a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Mathematics and was quickly accepted to Cornell. I had told myself I was getting a PhD for so long at that point. And keep in mind, I wasn't that old, like I was maybe 20 years old, but for like 15 years, that's 75% of my life. But uh, I think that it was also, I was always told 2% of PhDs in chemistry are Black. You are a phenomenal researcher. I was mentored by Nobel laureates. I had a lot of like the top scientists investing in me. I was being like flown to MIT, flown to Yale to like visit with professors and being recruited by them. But I hated it. I hated it. Like I was so depressed during that time, so much so that like for a period of time, I like abandoned my friends. Like all I had energy to do outside of lab was sleep. And people were like, where's Isa? Where's Isa? Like she's not at the brunch. She's not at the family reunions. And I was just like, I'm sorry. I'm just like too depressed. It was just because I didn't love it. 
And I didn't like it enough to want to pursue it like that. And I think that it was, it was the first time in my life really that I made a decision to part ways with something that my parents had expected of me. And I was good at it, but it wasn't feeding my soul. I mean, that must've been a heavy moment. I think that the decision to leave was really hard because, you know, with my parents, it was the struggles with my, my parents and their perspective and being okay with the fact that we disagreed. They said to me, they were like, if you leave now, you're a quitter and you're always going to be, have that like quitter air about you. Is that what you want for your life? And I was like, well, I'm not a quitter if I leave with my master's because I've already gotten my master's on the PhD route. Right. And so that was one thing. And the second thing was just a lot of shame around leaving a PhD program because, you know, we live in a society where you have like people like Sergey, they can leave their PhD program at Stanford and start Google and it's like, okay. And, and white men drop out of school all the time and it's okay. But as a black woman, I'm not even quote unquote supposed to be there. It's, it's very rare for me to be there. And for me to decide to leave, it's like, oh, she couldn't handle it. No, that's not true. My grades were pretty popping. But there was a lot of shame around what would people think. They'll label me as someone who was incapable and not try to understand the story behind why I left my PhD. And I'll just get the assumptions thrown my way that are not fair to me. And so I think I had to come to terms with, you know what? I have to do this for me. And regardless of whatever people may think about it, I have to do it for me. That's a pretty big feeling at such a young age with such a big decision. Where did that confidence and strength come from? I think that it was deciding that I was too tired of being sad. It was a decision. I was tired of being sad. I was tired of living the life that was for somebody else. I just made a decision that I have to live my life in the best way possible. You know, and another thing I know about parents even though I'm not a parent, I know this about parents. They may have their prescriptive views on what you do, but at the end of the day, all they really want is to look their child in the eye and see happiness. And so I knew that we would have a period of disagreement, but I knew on the other side when I came out and I was just kind of more thriving that they would then be like, okay, you know what? I didn't agree, but I see that you're happy and that makes me happy. Something that I always find fascinating is the mental shift that must happen inside ourselves as we pivot from one thing to another. As I share each of these stories, I always want to be clear that big pivots don't happen in the blink of an eye. It takes time and often a stepping stone to help you get to the next place. No, I transitioned. I did um, some time at Pfizer on the clinical side, and then I actually quickly went into business school at MIT. And so I actually thought that I would be on the business development side of science, right? I was like, oh, I, I, I actually really do love science. I love the commercialization of science. I love innovation. But I was like, okay, well, if I go to the business side, I can actually impact a lot more change. I felt like the MBA was a path to get me there more so than investing in the PhD front because I never actually wanted to be a full-time researcher. I always wanted to hop over to the business side. So you saw this as just a different path to get to the same vision. How was that experience? You know, it was one that was unique and interesting to navigate because going to business school, especially at a top school like MIT, 
you're in, in class with people who are like, oh, I did my two years at Goldman. I did my three years at McKinsey. You know, I did Teach for America for three years, you know, whatever the case is. And I was like, well, I have no business experience. I can talk to you about like, you know, a deal in Cyclase, one, four, seven, ten, touch out Cyclodecane. But I didn't even have the language <laughs> to like talk to them. Right. And so I remember going to business school and being very broadly recruited by like the top Wall Street firms, the top consulting firms. And I would say to them, I was like, you know, I'm just a chemist. And one recruiter pulled me aside and she was like, don't ever say that shit to anybody else. Because you are diminishing your value. You're a chemist, sure, but you're highly analytical. You're a good problem solver. You're a good communicator. These are all transferable skills that make you unique. And so going to business school was interesting because it was the first time I really learned to package my uniqueness as an advantage. And she did. During her time at MIT, she was thriving and people could see the talent and skills she brought to the table. So during my time at MIT, I, again, I initially thought I was going to go into business development and pharma, accidentally fell, like trickled into Wall Street, where I was the right hand to a lot of the C-suite executives at JP Morgan Chase. So, hey, Isa, move out to Hong Kong to build retirement products for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore. Hey, Isa, move back to build a $2 billion digital strategy for our 5 million American small businesses, the, the clients. And I had gotten so caught up in the validation I was getting from not just the fact that I was 26, like overseeing like $6 billion worth of different initiatives, right? That was pretty much unheard of. And I was always getting more because I was always delivering and producing. And, you know, I got also caught up with the validation that I got externally on social media. So being just starting to get all these awards, top 40, this top 30, this top black women and da, da, da. And I would put that out there and people were like, oh my God, you're so dope. You're like this amazing, you know, you're a badass, da, da, da. And then I, I just, it just became this, like this cycle I couldn't get out of. I was trapped. And then I became like a horse in Central Park with the blinders on. That was all I could see that I really neglected my real life in a big way. I was focused on the positioning of my life and the next achievement unlocked as opposed to, you know, living my life. Stuck in an endless race to a goalpost that constantly keeps moving, she was forced to take a hard look at her life after receiving a call about her parents that no one wants to receive. So during my time at J.P. Morgan Chase, my parents do what they do every year, which is they sponsored a bus trip for kids to visit Hampton University. And it was something that was really special to my parents. They did it together. They loved it. And it was really about being able to take kids whose parents maybe couldn't take off, right? And, and just kind of doing that for the community each year. And this particular year, the bus ran off a straight road, flipped over, and ejected both my parents out the front window. And my dad didn't survive that. My mom barely survived it. D is what I call him, lived his life to the fullest, uh, whether it be for his family, for his job, or, or for Hampton University. Just last year, he was running the bases like he was 25 years old at our... Watson was known throughout university circles as a man who loved his alma mater. He was also known as a man who'd rather be with his family than anywhere else. And I think it was, it was first of all, a moment that it was too much to process in the moment. And... I don't I think I walked around like a zombie for months after that because I just couldn't quite grasp what had happened. 
and with a lot of therapy and with a lot of just, you know, I will call my, my God, I'll be like, can you pray for me today? I mean, like the good prayer that you get on your knees for, not like the prayer you say in the cab, like, cause I need, I need all the prayer I can get. I realized that this whole notion of loneliness I was feeling had been exacerbated by the fact that I had neglected my real life in lieu of this like positioning life. And that sucked. It sucked bad. I mean, I remember my advisor at MIT sending me food because I wouldn't eat for like six months. I ate like a couple blueberries every day for six months. And so from a just a pivot perspective, up until that point in my life, everything was gunning for achievement, that next achievement. Let me check that box, check that box. And as a black woman, you like, I'm trying to check all the boxes possible. I'm gonna go check that box, check that box. And that box over there, oh, that one over there too. And this was the first time I decided I need to actually figure out purposes and live that life. My dad always said to me, he said, Isa, he said, you're such a blessed girl. And it's your job to share your blessings with as many people as you can. He said, because your time is limited. And when I'm 12, I'm 13, I'm like, you know, whatever. I just want to play my video games. Like, you know what I'm saying? And unfortunately, it took that type of tragedy for me to realize that, you know what? I think my calling is bigger than this. And... This whole notion of what social media was doing to our real life relationships and our behavior as excessive validation seekers was something that I saw. It was a shift that I saw happening. And, you know, I said, I don't want us to lose our humanity. That's too important. Like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, belonging is one of the fundamental needs of the human experience, belonging and connection. And so that's when I decided to leave J.P. Morgan to start squad and build a solution for true connection. However, one audio-based social app is now aiming to help millions of people who deepen their relationships and their friendships the healthy way, all on social media. So helping us break this all down is Isa Watson, the founder and CEO of Squad. Congratulations, Isa. Thank you so much for joining us on this amazing sort of moment you've had. You basically now are the highest fundraising black woman in America. You just raised over $7 million from investors for this platform. Congratulations, yeah. Thank Isa. Thank you. Our next guest mission is to get people off social media and back to real connections with others. So here to share more, we welcome social scientist. Isa Watson is with us today. Isa, thank you for being here. Eric, thanks for having me. And not just on social media, where I can see you and we can have a conversation that way. Having a conversation this way, uh, much, much better. But you talk about this, the toxic side of social media. That leaving, that wasn't an immediate, right? That took like a period of time. It took a period of time in part because, again, so the other part of my parents' accident is that my mom lost so much of her memory during an accident. I mean, I had to go back home to piece her life together because she didn't know where her bank accounts were or where her, who had her power bill? Who, was she at Duke or was she at Piedmont? And that took all the energy that I had to just help to nurse my mom back to health. So I didn't even really start the grieving and processing process until like a year later, because I was just trying to honestly survive, just make sure my mom was good and to just do enough at work <laughs> to do my job. And so that's when the kind of retrospection came in, at least a year after that. And it, it was just, again, a lot to process because there's, hey, this happened and I'm finally at the acceptance phase. But also, what am I doing with my life? Who am I? Do I know who I am? 
And when I looked in the mirror and I was confused on who I was, I was like, I have to do the work to get to a better understanding of what I'm supposed to be doing. So I did that in the background while I was still working at J.P. Morgan. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. It feels like to me that like there's two pieces. Like there was the internal piece of you figuring out who you are, how you want to be spending your life. And then there was the the external work product, like yeah. what you wanted to be putting out into the world, like yeah. how you wanted the world to be to be connecting. Did they kind of develop simultaneously for you? There was some parallel pathing, but I would say the internal work, I started that first. And I think it's actually, I tell people all the time, like working on yourself is not, it's, it's so much harder than like the hardest CrossFit class. It's really hard because you're actually like putting up a mirror and saying, this is the good, bad and ugly. These are the mistakes. This is what I am delivering. And this is where I want to be. And that's really hard when you're looking at it for yourself. And so I think there was that. And then where the parallel pathing came in of like, this is what I want to do was once I was able to talk about my experience without like breaking down and crying, right? I found that in conversation with so many different people that this whole notion of loneliness and getting lost in the internet was something that a lot of people related to and a lot of people experienced. It wasn't at that time as big of an issue as it is today, but it was enough and trending up in a way that I was like, there's going to be something here where I can make a big difference. Again, she had to do the emotional work to shift her mindset around what she thought she wanted to do. But letting go of that old self that she had worked so hard on was no easy task. I definitely wanted to keep my work ethic and my nickname at JP Morgan. So I worked for the CFO of the firm, the CEO of Chase. They all used to call me Miss Get Shit Done. They were like, yo, Miss GSD walked in the room. <laughs> she about to get it done. And so I, that was my claim to fame, actually. Like, hey, you need to build this billion dollar product. Don't worry, I will get it done. And I, so I think that I wanted to keep those skills and the ability to navigate a quarter million person firm to get really hard stuff done. That was really big because navigating the world 
as an entrepreneur is really hard. But what I wanted to shift was my fulfillment and my contribution to this world. When I left JP Morgan, they were like, you can't leave. We love you. And I was like, you know, I get that and I respect that. And the reality though, is that you will wake up tomorrow and still have a hundred billion dollar revenue company every year. You want me. You don't need me though. The world needs me. But you know, I never really thought about that before. I was like, I'm here to just check the boxes and do what my like, you know, make my Get parents the post, happy. Look good. Yeah, I want the gold star. But I never thought about the fact that I'm one of eight billion people. So I know I'm a, a very small part. But my dad believed in me so much and instilled in me the belief that I could always create outsized impact. And I I did that very well at JP Morgan. I did that very well at Pfizer. But now I wanted to do it for the world because I felt like I owed it to the world to make this world a better place. If I can leave the world just a little bit better than where I found it, that would make me feel fulfilled. That would make me feel happy. So I quit JP Morgan on a Friday and my office for a squad started on a Monday. And that was like the worst decision of my life. That was reckless. That was mentally reckless. And with that, I knew I wanted to do something that was helping people build better connection, build better community. And it took me a while to even figure out what that product looked like. And there's a chicken and egg thing when it comes to building a new tech company. Do you get the funding first? Do you get the product first? If you get the product, how many, how much traction do you have on the product? And I, I play with that chicken and that egg, but I mostly spent two to three years getting 400 doors slammed in my face. Squad was founded off Isa's search for connection in every part of her life. She noticed that most social connection takes place over text, which while easy, texting lacks the intimacy and vulnerability that grows and deepens friendships. Our big kind of debut product was a platform for people to get together in person in their relative companies, because this was kind of at the same time where a lot of workplace conversations with millennials were happening. And millennials weren't staying in their jobs and HR was like, they're too expensive. Like, how do we get them to stay? And we were like, create community, like community and connection are, are very much needed. And we actually had dozens of enterprise clients in that, in that software product. But the one thing that we learned over the course of that was, A, people wanted the extension of the community they built at work. They wanted it to extend their personal lives, too. We were also at a point where, you know, people were like, oh, the scrolling thing is easier. The scrolling is easier. I have no friends. Oh, okay, let me just scroll, scroll, scroll. No friends? Okay, cool. And so that was a cycle that people were trying to get out of. And we launched that. And then the pandemic hit. China has identified the cause of the mysterious new virus. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. There are fears a rapidly spreading virus has reached Australia. This is a rapidly emerging situation. There is not a cause for alarm. The first U.S. case has been detected. There's confirmation the coronavirus has reached Australia. The U.S. now has more reported cases of the coronavirus than any other country in the world. What we did on the product side was really interesting and it gave us unique insights. And I would say that COVID didn't shift the need for our business. It amplified it in a sustainable way. And so what we found was that instead of getting together in person, we turned the events into virtual events. 
And what we found was that users, instead of going to find new events with new people, they were going to events with the same people. The whole concept of deepening was way more of an appeal to users than the concept of meeting yet another new person. So Isa saw the need in the market and shifted to an app that focuses on an audio product that includes just 12 squad friends. Squad uses audio technology and habit creation to mimic real-life social conversations with your closest friends every day. Audio is just kind of a medium, but friendship and connection is the product. We make it easy and fun for you to talk to your close friends every day. And also, we've gotten feedback from our users that Squad is the place where I can go on my phone and just completely disarm. They're like, it's too much going on in my text messages. I got my gardener, my boyfriend, my grandma, my toxic cousin. <laughs> too much going on in my phone in general. Too much going on in social media. Where can I just have my intimate place? And there was a psychology that we were learning around kind of safety and privacy that people wanted and wanted to value. And so we shifted the product actually kind of behind the scenes a little bit. And now we're at a place where our retention is three times higher than it's ever been. Our product is used widely among public school students in New York City. We did some activations there and that took off in a big way. It's one of those things where you, you shake the tree, you build a product, and then you're like, wow, okay, this, is, this one has the momentum. It's the right place. It's the right product. It's the right time. You've said that, quote, when I was on Wall Street, I felt like I was more Black than I was a woman. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So there's so few Black people in the research field. In fact, my best friend, Dr. Kazmikia Corbett, who created the Moderna vaccine, she's a professor at Harvard now. She was my first lab partner at 14. She was in the same program. And we used to talk about the fact that we didn't really have people that looked like us that we could really look up to. And now she's that person for so many young scientists. And so there were a lot of times in science where I would walk around, for example, and I would get mistaken as like the janitor sometimes. And it wasn't because I like had on the blue uh, suit that they wore, but it, it was just this deeply held unconscious bias that I couldn't be there. So I think that that was where a lot of the, wow, I'm, I'm black first to them. And then when I shifted to Wall Street, one of my mentors, she was one of the earliest women in hedge funds back in like the 70s. I mean, she's legit. And she would tell me about like the different entrances that she had to go through in some of the buildings, right? And just how deeply sexist Wall Street was. And I didn't really quite understand that I knew about sexism. But up until that point, like the discrimination I mostly faced felt like racism. And intersectionality is a whole thing, right? <laughs> but I think that when I went to Wall Street, my experience was a little bit more, and actually tech, my experience was a little bit closer to the white woman than it was the black man. And I think that, and I'm not saying that black men don't have, you know, their own issues of, of navigating Wall Street, but it was something about being able to broker the relationship well with that white man who was the CEO, or that white man who was the client. And being able to go out and have drinks and I'm going to go to golf and, you know, we'll leave the wives at home. There's so much of a relationship component to navigating the Wall Street and tech world that the, the man to man relationship is easier to develop, essentially. 
And then these white men look at me, this black woman, they're like, mm, I don't have anything in common with you. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, that was where, where I was like, okay, my, I feel a lot more similarities to the, to the white women in this regard, because I mean, even very inappropriate comments around like when women would have babies or do you plan on getting pregnant? And, you know, there was just a lot of just deep rooted sexism. And I think in the finance and tech world. And so my experience kind of shifted a little bit. Given all of that, would you recommend that young black women go into either medicine or wall street at this point? (laughs) Honestly, if they want to, But when you are black or minority and the more boxes you check as a minority, the more that traditional experience helps you launch to the next thing. Right. So people, a lot of, you know, this is a big fight in the, in Silicon Valley right now. Like a lot of white men will say college is so unnecessary and stuff like that. But then we're like, tell us when you back to black founder who didn't go to college and not just that, tell me when you back to black founder who didn't go to Harvard, MIT or Stanford. And then they can't, <laughs> you know? And so um, I would say if, if they want to, sure. Isa is yet another one of our guests who's normalizing the conversation around not having kids. Something I love hearing about and bringing into the conversation. You know, I think that is totally a choice that people are, are fine to make. For me personally, my lifestyle is one where I'm happy with a lot more freedom than what kids would give me. And, you know, having children, I started to feel like was an intentional decision that a lot of people weren't intentional about. I froze my eggs like four years ago. I froze my eggs because I, I went from definitely wanting children to not knowing if I wanted children or not to not wanting children. And that took about 10 years. The wanting children, I think for me, was the fact that I came from a a family of six kids. And my parents were just like, they were like, oh, at five years old, they were like, you know, you're going to get your PhD from Harvard or MIT. Because when you have kids growing up in North Carolina, it's like you're expected to have kids. And, you know, I was told I was old to not have kids at 27 by my aunt. (laughs) And so I think it was I had absorbed the expectation, not really thinking intentionally was having children what I wanted. And then I got to the point where kind of in my late twenties, I was like, you know, I could have kids, but I'm also okay if I don't have kids. The other thing I'll say though, Emily, is that the shift from maybe I want kids to, I don't want kids. I was afraid of the stigma. I think there's a little bit of a a stigma around women who don't have kids. And Chelsea Handler's talked about this a lot recently, you know, being childless and, and her choice in doing that and their negative thoughts and comments around that. And I think being okay with that, that took a while too. I've read interviews with you where you say that journalists wanted to profile you and they wanted to profile this black female entrepreneur story. They wanted you to have like a rags to riches story. Yeah, I think that, you know, my experience with the media oftentimes has been that they love to, you know, there's a confirmation bias that they like to tap into oftentimes. And a lot of black entrepreneurs experience as we talk about it a lot. They called it poverty porn because, you know, what they what they wanted was single parent household, homeless. Those are the stories that you see that are amplified a lot. Right. And so it was weird because when I would talk about squad, they were like, let's go to your upbringing. And I'm like, okay, cool, let's go to it. And they're like, so tell us like, what were like, what were the, it's hard for them to get it out. Were there, were there difficulties in your childhood? And I'm like, yeah, being a 13 year old was pretty difficult, but they were like, well, tell us about, you know, 
Did you have one parent, two parents? And so when I got those types of questions all the time, I knew they were looking for a background that I just didn't have. So there are a few times where my story just wasn't interesting enough from a background perspective because it didn't fit that. Was there a moment that you realized that was what they were looking for? Like as you started to go through these interviews? Yeah, definitely. Especially when I engaged with some writers and then I would see down the road stories that they did write about. And I'm not like saying that if you if that's your background, that there's anything wrong with that. And I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to, you know, have a trajectory that's up, but it just wasn't true to me. And so what I found myself doing to try to like kind of fit that a little bit was telling my parents stories. Right. And I would be like, well, you know, my dad grew up poor. My mom grew up poor on a tobacco farm. And, and they were like, but how'd you grow up? <laughs> I was like, not poor. Right. <laughs> I had a pretty decent sized house. You know, I had two parents. I don't, I don't know what you want from me. You know, my upbringing was one that was, you know, I had two very present parents. It was, you know, your typical hard social life of your, your elementary, middle and high school. But it was one that, you know, there was a lot of love. There was a lot of intentionality. The bar was high. You know, I was the type of kid where I would bring home a 98 on an exam and they were like, OK, cool. But where are the two points that I still deal with? Right. Because when I do something, I'm like, wait, what did I miss? Not what did I do? My parents set a high bar, but I will say that, you know, quite frankly, it's one that's got me where I am today. I will say that I got to a point where I started to carry a little bit of shame about that. I was like, am I privileged? Wait, no, I'm not like, what? I was like, what is it? You know, and so I, I internalized this a lot. And then I was like, you know what? My background is my background. My upbringing is my upbringing. And it is what it is. Right. Totally. So talk to me about the skydiving. Being a founder is hard. Being a founder is so hard. It's so lonely. It's so mentally draining. All the things. And throughout my founder journey, I have invested in different things to reset my mental health. So I used to do guided meditation, but I had always wanted to skydive. So I tried it and it was crazy because you're not supposed to skydive through clouds. Like there's regulations. We shouldn't have been skydiving, but they took me. Like the plane was so small. You can just roll out of it. You couldn't even like step in the door. But it was the most amazing experience of my life. I will say that skydiving is 13% women in the U.S., 40,000 skydivers. And it's like, I mean, point some, some zero, zero percent black. But I love to get women in the sport and more black people in the sport. So I'm trading right now to compete in the 2024 U.S. Nationals for skydiving. I'm in Skydive Chicago. So if you're a skydiver, reach out to me. What is one thing that at the time you thought was like a real low for you? And now would you look back and actually set you on the path that you're on now, the successful path? I guess two parts, like losing my dad was a real low, but the way that it shifted my perspective in life and my priorities is something I'll be, I'll be forever grateful for. And I think about it every day. I got so much validation from my dad and even not having that today is still a void that I deal with. And then I think a low was having a company that wasn't suited to survive a pandemic and figuring out how to pivot that and how to extend runway and get to the other side of that. There were times where, I, you know, people, you talk about PhD programs, every PhD student will tell you at some point they were like, what am I doing here? That was kind of March, April, May of 2020 for me. I was so depressed about the pandemic's impact on the business, so much so that I had gotten on antidepressants. My doctor put me on. And just pulling myself out of that so I can pull my team out of that 
and charting on the path that we're on today. I mean, it's seriously the most fulfilling thing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Isa lives in Brooklyn and is continuing to develop and grow squad. Her book, Life Beyond Likes, is out now. Go read it. It's a necessary investigation into how social media plays a role into our own happiness, fulfillment, and our pivots. To find out more about Isa, you can follow her on Instagram at Isa D. Watson. She Pivots is an amazing community of women who understand that personal is the professional. Join the community on Instagram at She Pivots the Podcast. A special thank you to our partner, Marie Claire, and the team that made this episode possible. Talk to you next week. She Pivots is hosted by me, Emily Tish Sussman, produced by Emily Edda Voloshik, with sound editing and mixing from Nina Pollock, and research and planning from Christine Dickison and Hannah Cousins. I endorse She Pivots. Get the best workout with the best-kept secret in fitness. Hydro, the state-of-the-art at-home rower. Hydro engages 86% of your muscles, delivering the ultimate full-body workout in just 20 minutes. From advanced to beginner, Hydro has over 4,000 classes that are shot all over the world and are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes. For a 30-day risk-free trial with free standard shipping, go to Hydro.com and use code row 500 to save up to $500. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com. Code row 500 Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Just head to Amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate 
or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.